On this episode of Blue 58, the Packers won a game. That's good, right? I think so. At any rate, it gives us something a little bit more interesting to talk about than a loss. But what can we really take away from this one? It's hard to take a look at the forest, but maybe if we take a look at some individual trees, we'll get an idea what this game means. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Mirdick. I'm excited to be with you here after a Packers win. It's been too long since we've been able to say that. Yes, I know the win over the Dolphins was only two weeks ago, but man, it seems like a long time ago or three weeks ago. I don't know. The season's all starting to run together. What we can talk about, though, for sure, is what happened today. Live in the moment, I guess. The Packers won, and that's good. It probably puts to rest any talk of tanking, at least for now, uh, because the Packers didn't play particularly hard or even particularly well, I think, but they still handled the Falcons pretty easily. If you would like the Packers to lose, and you're in the mi- minority, I would say, according to our poll numbers, but if you are the person who is saying the Packers should be out there tanking, this one's a tough one because how much more could you really do to lose this game without really, really trying to lose this game? It wasn't like the Packers were going great guns trying to put the Falcons away. It just kind of worked out that way. Sometimes you fall into 34 points, and that seems to be what the, what happened with the Packers today. And again, the Falcons just aren't very good. So if you're trying to lose games or if you're in the market for losing games, you really have to lose some games, I guess. Why did this one happen? Again, it hardly matters. Uh, the Falcons are pretty bad really bad on defense, and they played kind of like the Packers did last week. Kind of nonchalant, like they're not really ready to play this game, like they're kind of tired of hearing what their head coach has to say, and you end up losing a game that you maybe should have had a chance to win. What can we learn from this game? Again, it hardly matters, and it's also hard to say, because it's not like the Packers winning this game puts them back in the playoff conversation They are technically still alive, but they got a lot of work to do and they need some help. The Packers really have to win two more games before things really matter at all because then you get down to week 17 and it's a a win, not win and you're in, but win and you've done everything you can. And even then it might not matter. They could win out and things don't break their way elsewhere in the league and it doesn't matter. You don't get in the playoffs. So it's hard to say anything matters beyond a theoretical sense, because for that last week's game to matter, last week of the season, not last week as in seven days ago, there's a lot of work to be done. That's still pretty hypothetical. So in terms of takeaways along those lines, it's really tough to do anything substantive. So I think instead of looking at the really big picture in this one, you have to look at the the individual performances, and I really do mean individual. We have to talk about a few guys in particular in this one at a couple different points on the roster as they pertain to this season, but more how they pertain to the Packers going forward. So I've broken down these guys into three particular categories. We've got uh, free agents, ones that were acquired over the course of the last nine months or so, non-prestige young guys. So I'm thinking people other than like Jair Alexander or Marquez Valdez-Scantling, the big names, and then we'll just do some some random thoughts and observations. The the big stars on the Packers, how do they play? So let's talk about some guys. Let's start with Bashad Breland. He had an exciting game today. He intercepted a, a pass and returned it for a touchdown, perhaps the most exciting play in football. It's either that or a punt return for a touchdown for me. And he also recovered a fumble. 
So the question now is, do you bring him back next year? I think things would have to be trending that way. The Packers seem to have gotten a pretty good return on their investment with Breland, but it's worth bearing in mind that uh, the investment in him was pretty small. He signed a one-year $880,000 deal earlier this season, and that's prorated over the time that he would spend on the roster as a, as a free agent. He is an unrestricted free agent this offseason, meaning he can sign with the Packers or any other NFL team. And it's worth considering that last year he got a fairly substantial contract from the Carolina Panthers before that deal was voided due to an injury to Breland. Really strange injury, not worth digging into again. That deal was a three-year, $24 million agreement, $11 million guaranteed. So what's the market for Breland this offseason? I think that's going to be the biggest determining factor for what what the Packers may be interested or whether or not they're interested in bringing him back. I think something in the neighborhood of three years and 12 to 15 million feels about right. That's about half of the contract, plus or minus a little bit, that he got from the Panthers last year. This is his age 26 season, or he's 26 years old right now, rather. And if you could get him for that price, it's probably a deal worth thinking about. I would bring him back at that price. And it's worth bearing in mind, too, that three-year deals in the NFL more often than not actually are functionally two-year deals. And that third year, if you get to that third year, fine. If not, usually you're done after after two years and the, the team just moves on. Any real damage that you're going to do to somebody's cap is going to be done in those first couple of years. So if, they, if they're going to waive you and you're not playing particularly well, it's going to happen after that, that second year. According to SpotTrack.com, they do a projection based on uh, how you're playing, your age profile, stuff like that. Breland projects at more in that upper $6 million per year range. That would put you at three years, $18 million. That seems a little bit high to me, but I think it may be palatable considering some other things the Packers have going on in their secondary. Right now, their top Three corners, since Kevin King is on injured reserve, are Tremont Williams, Jair Alexander, and Josh Jackson. There are some other players in the secondary that have something to say yet here, Tony Brown being one. But if everything else holds, Breland is probably going to be your number three, number four, maybe even number five, depending on how strong Kevin King comes back, cornerback. Do you want to pay upper $6 million per year for that? Probably not, but if you could get him more at that $12 million in total compensation figure, it might be worth doing. These are the sort of signings that kept Ted Thompson up at night. Well, not really, because he didn't sign anybody to these kind of deals, but these were the deals that he was trying to avoid getting in a position where you'd have to make. You'd rather not be paying third contract money to your fourth or fifth cornerback. So as exciting as a day like today can be for a guy like Breland and Packers fans who were excited to get him, it doesn't mean he's a slam dunk coming back. You really have to to feel this one out and see where he's going to be price-wise. And to be honest, there are pro- probably other Bashad Brelands out there. As good as he's been for the Packers, he does have a fairly easily replaceable skill set. He's not going to be he's not ever going to be your number 1 or number 2 corner. If he gets to be your number three cornerback, you're probably okay with that, but you're not super excited about it. So he ends up being that number four, number five guy. He does play special teams. He can return kicks in a pinch. 
there's a lot to consider, I guess is what I'm saying. It's not a slam dunk to bring him back, although today was pretty exciting. The other free agent I'd like to talk about is Jimmy Graham. And his situation is a lot more complicated than I think some people online are making it out to be. He has not been a real game changer for the Packers this year. And today was kind of a frustrating game to watch. Uh, He only finished with two catches for 13 yards, but the Packers targeted him fairly frequently. And given what they're paying him this year, I think they would like to be getting a little bit more production out of their Jimmy Graham investment than they are. Now, I'm not sure we ever really nailed down what the the fair expectations were for Jimmy Graham this year. And I think there were more people who were expecting 2014 New Orleans Saints Jimmy Graham than there probably should have been. And I'm not sure how much we fed into that or not. Try to be fairly, you know, tempered with our expectations for players. But I do remember saying, you know, just prior to midseason or so, he was on pace for something like mid-70s catches, 700-something yards, and I think it was just three touchdowns because he only had the one or something about about the time when we talked about that. And that, those are pretty good numbers. He's not going to end up close to that now, but that that's a pretty good season. Is it worth what the Packers are paying him? No, and I guess that brings brings it to the question about whether or not you bring him back. If you cut Jimmy Graham next season, after the New Year League starts, um, you do have to do some pretty hard thinking about what that does to your cap. The Packers have a lot of cap room heading into next season, and you don't necessarily gain all that much by releasing him. Jimmy Graham has a $12.66 million cap hit for 2019. If you cut him prior to June 1st, and there are different rules for a pre-June 1st cut and a post-June 1st cut. Not worth really breaking down, but just be be mindful that they exist. A pre-June 1st cut would cost the Packers $7.3 million against the cap. They would save $5.3 million. Post-June 1st, he costs them $8.7 million against the 2019 cap. And just four million, it gives them just four million dollars in cap savings. So if they're going to release them, it's probably going to happen fairly early. I think the big question with Jimmy Graham is if you believe his athleticism is going to continue to decline. I've been on the fence for this one for a while. People who I respect talking about the Packers say it's really evident that his speed has declined. I've been less iffy on that, but or less less certain on that. I'm not sure that he's, you know, tremendously slower than he was. And I don't think speed was ever a super big deal for him. But I think today's game, if you go back and look at each of his targets, what you'll really notice is that he has no explosion in his leaping ability anymore. He's very ground bound. He can't get off the ground at all anymore. And that's really affecting his ability to take advantage of the size mismatches that he does get. If this is as bad as it gets for Jimmy Graham and you can get him to be that 70 catch, 700 yards, five to nine touchdowns kind of guy, okay, that's maybe not too bad for 2019. It's probably not worth almost $13 million against your cap, but maybe you swallow that. But if it's just going to get worse from here and he's not going to be able to beat anybody, maybe you just eat that $7.3 million and you move on. 
maybe it's less about what the the cap actually is and more just about trying to get more guys' opportunities there. And I know we all love Bob Tanyan and, and all that. I don't want to dive into that here. But the Jimmy Graham question is going to be a big one. And today's game, I think, kind of showed us why. Let's talk about some of the non-prestige young guys. Again, I'm thinking guys outside the, the purview of like a Jair Alexander, who's who's great and fun to watch, and Marquez Valdez-Scantling, excuse me, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and all of his big plays and such, although they haven't been coming quite so frequently lately. I'd like to talk about, I think I got six names on my list here. Yes, I do. Sixth game, six names, starting with Josh Jackson. Today, I think, was an encouraging game for Josh Jackson. Because I think it gives us kind of a good baseline for how to evaluate Jair Alexander. And this is going to look good for Jair because of the two, Jackson seems to be playing more like a rookie corner that you're still fairly happy with. Alexander just plays like a, like a professional. Uh, like he's been in the league for a few years. Sure, he'll, he'll give up plays now and then, but he's going to make more than his share as well too. Um, I think you take the stat line that he gave up to Julio Jones today because one of those touchdowns really wasn't Alexander's fault, and it's Julio Jones. So, and he wasn't getting much help either. But Jackson plays like a rookie corner that you're seeing some good things from. He seems to know where he's supposed to be. He does a lot of good things. He's in on a lot of pass breakups, but he does a lot of bad things, but not bad things that are just oh, this guy can't play, just bad things that are bad habits or things that he can correct. For instance, his propensity to grab. That's something that you can get fixed. And I think he just shows that he belongs out there with how often that he's in on plays that end up going in the Packers' favor. Similarly, Tony Brown is somebody I think we should be fairly excited about. He is in on absolutely everything. If the ball is in his area, whether it's a catch and run, a running back who gets into the secondary, a pass thrown his direction. He's just in on it. And that is exciting to see because that's we have not seen aggressive play like that from corners in the Packers secondary in a long, long time. Plus, he's a crazy, crazy athlete. He can run like nobody's business. Just watch him on punts. Just gets down the field like you wouldn't believe. And that's the sort of thing that, that's worth having around. You're always going to give a little bit of extra leash to those guys who who are that kind of athlete. So even though I might have argued for it at the time, I'm glad they didn't gut him, cut him after he had a couple bad plays in the Detroit-Buffalo era of the season because he is he's kind of evened out a little bit and he's made some good plays since then. He's probably about what they're hoping Natrell Jamerson turns out to be. This guy they picked up from Wisconsin this week, another very good athlete. Uh, with similar size to Tony Brown. Let's talk about Alex Light. I mentioned last week on the preview podcast that he was uh, our young player to watch. Hadn't played all season. He, due to an injury to Justin McRae, who was in for Byron Bell, who was, who, and McRae was only in because the other guard for the Packers was out, Lane Taylor was out, and Lucas Patrick was playing for him already. So McRae comes in because he's already we're already down to guard number three. Then McCray gets hurt and Alex Light comes in. And then as soon as McCray gets checked out on the sideline, he comes right back in and Alex Light heads to the bench. That probably tells you all we need to know about Alex Light for right now. That was kind of a roundabout way of saying that Alex Light probably isn't ready for right now, but I think that gave us our answer. So it was good to see that he got into the game and things didn't go completely um, off the rails while he was in, but that he didn't stay in probably shows us what we need to know for the time being. 
I need to talk about Jamal Williams just for a second here. Uh, he's not a first-year player or a rookie like like a lot of these other guys. But I think I'm off the Jamal Williams bandwagon. And I was sitting near the front of that increasingly empty collection of fans for quite a while. Um, I have argued for a long time there are a lot of merits to Jamal Williams. I'm not prepared to argue that position anymore. Because while he doesn't take anything off the table for your offense, he doesn't really bring anything to it either. You look at explosive plays, something that we track on a weekly basis, have been doing so all year. It's only produced one in 14 weeks, despite being almost equal to Aaron Jones and reps through about week 11 or 12 or so. They had almost the exact same number of attempts, and he had produced only one explosive play. You'd think you'd get more than that almost by accident. Explosive plays, remember, are are runs of 12 or more yards or receptions of 16 or more yards. There's a high correlation between drives that feature an explosive play and drives that end in scores. Jamal Williams does not produce explosive plays. He doesn't screw anything up for your offense, but sometimes when he's out there, it almost feels like the Packers are playing with 10 men, and one of those 10 men is the guy getting the ball. That's a little bit frustrating, and uh, I think they're probably going to look to add a little bit more explosiveness to their backfield um, this offseason. And I think they've continued to try to do that with guys like Trey Carson and the various other stocky but explosive number three running backs they've added this year. That was the great thing about Ty Montgomery. Bad though the ending was, he could contribute and did contribute big plays on a fairly regular basis, both as a receiver and as a runner, at least a lot more regularly than Jamal Williams. Finally, we need to conclude by talking about Montrevious Adams and Tyler Lancaster. And I think you have to talk about these two guys together because they, they play very similarly and get similar amounts of reps. I don't really know what to think about Montrevious Adams. And despite getting more opportunities, the picture just stays fairly muddled with him week in and week out. He'll do a couple good things every week, but he'll also get washed out of runs like four times out of five, it seems. You just see number 90 going backwards or sideways on a running play, and opposing teams just are not scared of him at all. It's been a little bit better when he plays at defensive end as opposed to nose tackle or the three technique like we talked about during a last week's um, last week's post or podcast, but it just hasn't happened super regularly, and that's that's frustrating. Um, but Tyler Lancaster, though he doesn't give you a lot as a pass rusher, is just strong as an ox against the run. And it's fun to see him shed blocks and really stack people up at the line. And plus, he just looks like a polar bear. So that's kind of kind of fun, too. He's been everything that we were excited about when we wrote about him when the Packers picked him up after the draft. Um, just a, a good athlete for his size, long arms, and uh, he uses all of that size and, and strength to play the run very, very well. Let's talk about some big names, then, uh, then circle back to the, today's game before we head off into the weekend. The big names. Well, it doesn't get any bigger than Aaron Rodgers. Was he better this week than he's been in the past few weeks? I think I'm going to settle on the, pack, or on the Falcons Excuse me, just being bad. And that being the real reason that Rodgers looked to be playing a little bit better. Uh, there were still plenty of opportunities where it seemed like he was dancing in the backfield and not really making a decisive move down the field. And, of course, there were a couple really good plays, too. Um, some of the plays that he turned into scrambles were top-notch, great stuff. Uh, but others, 
Uh, he ended up running around and even running into sacks a couple times, it looked like. It looked like a, a, at times like a, a young player out there, and you'd like to see that executed a little bit more crisply. That touchdown pass to Randall Cobb, though, just vintage, beautiful Rodgers. It couldn't have been anywhere else, and I don't know if anybody else on the Packers, aside from maybe Devontae Adams, makes that catch. Geronimo Allison might have been able to, too, but just a beautiful vintage hookup between him and Randall Cobb, and in a season that's looking more and more like Randall Cobb is a little bit without a role in the Packers offense, it was nice to see that one more time. Speaking of receivers, we got to talk about Devontae Adams because as far as big names on the Packers go, it does not get better than this. It gets bigger in the form of Aaron Rodgers, but better. Devontae Adams, beautiful today. He had kind of the wide receiver version of a grinded out game, only 81 yards, only seven catches, but he did a lot every time he touched the ball. It ended up scoring that one touchdown. In fact, there's only one, t- or not, excuse me, after that one touchdown to bay, today, there were only three games so far this year out of 14 in which Adams has not scored. He is a stud, and there's really no other way to put it. At this point, we're starting to talk about where he fits among the great recent receivers in Packers history. Ted Thompson had a well-deserved reputation for picking up very good receivers in the second round. The three biggest, probably Greg Jennings, Jordy Nelson, and now Devontae Adams. And I think there's an emerging case to be made that Adams could be the best of that group. Though he did not have as much success early as Jennings, and though it remains to be seen if he went on to the heights of Jordy Nelson, From age 24 through 26, the past three years, and this is Adam's age 26 season since he turns 26 on Christmas Eve, in that three-year span, Adams looks like the best. In those three years, Greg Jennings played 45 games. He caught 201 passes for 3,325 yards and 25 touchdowns. That averages out to 71 catches for just under 1,200 yards and 9 touchdowns per 16 games. Jordy Nelson also played 45 games in that same span. He caught 135 passes, bit of a late bloomer, for 2,165 yards and 19 touchdowns. In that same span, he averaged 68 catches, 770 yards, and 7 touchdowns per 16 games. Devontae Adams has three games to go yet this season, so he will wind up with 45 games in that same span as well, assuming he stays healthy, blah, blah, blah. He has racked up 234 catches, for 2,997 yards and 33 touchdowns so far in his age 24 through 26 seasons. That's an average of 89 catches for 1,142 yards and 13 touchdowns per 16 games. Not bad, and it's been exciting to watch. Finally, Kenny Clark presents a bit of an interesting case. He had an almost very ugly injury early in this game, and had to come out for a fairly lengthy period, but did return. No brace on the elbow, nothing like that. And apparently he only needs one arm to play effective football because he did seem to be fairly effective even after he returned from that injury. Not normal world-wrecking Kenny Clark, but still fairly good. But I wonder in this situation, do you have to shut him down for his own good? Kenny Clark has been playing very high amounts of snaps so far this season. On a per-game basis, uh, just on a, a cumulative basis over the course of the season, anyway you slice it, he's playing a lot, more than you typically see from a defensive lineman. If he's going to continue to play at that level and battle through an injury 
which he seems to be willing to do, do you need to shut him down for his own good? Yes, in theory, the Packers are still alive for the playoffs. But all things being equal, do you just have to bet on the Packers not making the playoffs and not wanting to put a guy who is already apparently at least a little bit hurt in harm's way to get even more hurt over the last three weeks of the season? I think that has to be a consideration for the Packers over the course of this week. And they'll get a look at what his elbow is doing and, and how he's actually doing over the course of this week. But I think that that is a legitimate question. Um, let's talk about some stuff from these actual Packers-Cardinals game and then get out of here. Uh, those early challenges, I liked them from Joe Philbin, but the results were absolute garbage. I think it was pretty clear that neither of those were a catch. And this, again, gives us an opportunity to talk about these rules consultants being the absolute worst thing about NFL broadcast today, among the many things we could complain about. Either you're telling a guy who's yelling at his TV at home in flyover country that he's an idiot, or you're undermining the refs on the field. And in both of these situations, it appeared that Blandino went against what the call on the field said. So you're having a guy who's in the broadcast booth saying these guys in the field might not know what they're talking about. That seems like a bad look for NFL officials and probably not not a super great thing for the broadcast team to be doing if they're trying to remain objective. Because then from that point on, you start to wonder, well, how many of these other calls are they getting wrong? And the in a game when the refs refing seemed uh, capricious a little bit at best, That's probably not a question that the broadcast team needs to be raising. Speaking of the broadcast team, we had Kevin Burkhart and Charles Davis in this one. Charles Davis remains very bad. You tried to work in a reference to Wedding Crashers, the movie from, what, 13 years ago, something like that, in. First, do people remember that movie well enough for that reference to work? Second, did it even make sense? Probably no on both counts. But Charles Davis had the line of the day, something that I didn't know, Falcons fans probably know this. NFL Drafts fans probably knew knew this. But Falcons running back Ito Smith, the Ito Ito is not his first name, but that was his nickname. And we were informed on the origin of the nickname in a great poll by Charles Davis. Apparently, that was a childhood nickname given by one of his siblings who said that he looked like Lance Ito, Judge Lance Ito, who, if you are a historian of the O.J. Simpson murder trial you will recognize his name because he was the judge in that case and also apparently a a terrific athlete and the source of the nickname for Ito Smith. I thought that was cool. That was the only good thing that Charles Davis has said in any of the Packers games that he's done this season, but it was a good one. So credit where credit is due. I thought it was interesting to note that uh, Mike Pettin, and I think we talked about this last, last week, has kind of started to shift away a little bit from some of the overload blitzes that he's used this season. But the Falcons used those fairly effectively against Aaron Rodgers early on a couple key third downs. Some great stuff from them there. Speaking of third down, Bashad Breland makes a Bashad Breland, excuse me, makes a great pick six on on a third down saying that he knew that they only had a couple routes uh, that they could work on with uh, with Austin Hooper there. Read it the whole way, picked it off. It was beautiful. Runs it in for a touchdown. Great play there. Had his mouth guard stuck into his face mask on the right side, just in front of the ear hole. That was kind of a neat little detail to see there. And funny that he wasn't wearing it. I don't know why you wouldn't wear your mouth guard if you've got it with you on the field. I don't understand the guys who don't wear mouth guards. Man, I couldn't have imagined playing football at the level, very, very low levels that I did without that. 
Aaron Rodgers had a great day scrambling. Um, as much as he, he did kind of run into a couple sacks, he ran out of a lot more of them. And uh, he picked up 44 yards rushing on those scrambles. And that is the most since he had 46 yards against the Titans on November 13th, 2016. Almost, well, more than two years since he's had that, that many rushing yards, that much success running the football. He did have two great scrambles in particular on the Packers' last long drive before halftime in which Mason Crosby ended up kicking a field goal. Good day for Mason Crosby, by the way, too. Uh, his 50-yard his field goal, I think that was the one right before halftime, was a real ugly liner, but it got through, and that's all that matters, just getting it through. Matt Bryant apparently could not get it through. Uh, had a had a rough day at the office. 0 for 1 kicking field goals. 2 for 3 on point after tries or point after touchdowns. Uh, interesting to note that Giorgio Tavecchio, a healthy scratch today for the Falcons. He has been helping them out with Matt Bryant dealing with some injury issues. He was, of course, with the Packers in the 2012 preseason while Mason Crosby was working through his issues. No, maybe that was 2013. After Mason Crosby's bad 2012 season, yes, that's what it was, I believe. On that same long, oh, whoops, skipping, skipping too far ahead. Skip talking about the long, wrong drives here. Um, in the second half, Joe Philbin tried to use that long developing multiple fake screen pass that Mike McCarthy tried. I believe it was against the Vikings a couple weeks ago. It did not work particularly well. Surprise, surprise. But on the very next play, he pulled out another screenplay that did work well. Worth noting. We talked about explosive plays a little bit earlier. On that very drive, Aaron Jones had three explosive plays. He had that screenplay, which was a long game, an explosive catch. He followed that up with an explosive run, a nice off-tackle run out of shotgun, then finished the drive off with a long run for a touchdown, wrapping up his third explosive play. What happens next for the Packers? Well, they are to Chicago next weekend, a noon kickoff. All hail the noon kickoff. And out of the four games the Packers had remaining, this one today and the last three, this is the one that I wanted the Packers to win most. Because no matter what happens with the Bears this season, if they go to the playoffs, do whatever they do, if the Packers get the sweep, the Packers will always have the sweep. They ruin Khalil Mack's debut. They have a chance to take the season from the Bears. I want this one. I hope the Packers can get it. Would love to see it. If the Packers do win, it will be their first back-to-back wins since week 13 and 14 of last year, in which which they beat the Browns and Buccaneers in overtime, back-to-back weeks. Yes, it has been a year since the Packers have won back-to-back games. If the Packers lose next week, and there's probably a fairly good chance that happens, let's be honest, we have to say that every week, If they do lose, though, we might have to have another discussion about tanking or the quasi-tanking approach we discussed last week. Because if the Packers become well and truly out of it, I think that does change your approach for the the last couple weeks of the season. And if it's only two games, there's not a lot of up or down you're really going to do in your draft stock, so it's not really super tanking anyway. If they win, though, I think the Packers kind of have to slow play it again for another week. See what you happen. See what happens. Because, again... It's not going to be an an utter elimination scenario for the Packers. Either way, after they play the Bears, they'll be going to New York to play the Jets, who are very bad. And then they'll finish out the season at home against the Lions, who are as iffy a team as we've seen this year. 
They're like the Packers in many respects. You really don't know what you're going to get from them week to week. Sometimes they're going to beat the Packers. Sometimes they're going to beat the Patriots. Other times they're just going to kind of fall all apart on Thanksgiving and, and lose a bad game. Either way, we'll see. It's still an interesting season. I had a lot of fun with this game today. There's always something interesting to watch, and we saw a lot of interesting stuff from a lot of players today. Good stuff to be looking at going forward. I hope you'll join us over the remainder of this season and as we venture into the offseason as well. It's been a great season to be with you here on Blue 58. Thank you very much for downloading and listening and subscribing. Do me a Christmas favor here and tell a friend about Blue 58 if you enjoy what we're doing here. And always... uh, Don't forget, if you've got questions, if you've got comments, if you've got thoughts, never hesitate to reach out. I am more than happy to interact with anybody on whatever platform you choose. That's going to do it for this episode. We'll be back with you on Wednesday with another episode of Blue 58. I've been your host, John Meerdink. Thank you once again for listening. Blue 58!